The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the London Visited Podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we look at Samuel Pepys, and this is part two of our two-part podcast on Samuel Pepys. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering places all over London that you don't want to miss. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are so many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now to this week's podcast. In the early hours of 2nd of September 1666, Pepys was awakened by Jane the maid, his servant, who had spotted a fire in the Billingsgate area. He decided that the fire was not particularly serious and returned to bed. Shortly after waking, his servant returned and reported that 300 houses had been destroyed and that London Bridge was threatened. Pepys went to the Tower of London to get a better view. Without returning home, he took a boat and observed the fire for over an hour. In his diary, Pepys recorded his observations as follows. I down to the waterside, and there got a boat and threw bridge, and there saw a lamentable fire. Poor Mitchell's house, as far as the old swan, already burned that way, and the fire running further. And in that very little time, it got as far as Steelyard, while I was there. Everybody endeavouring to remove their goods, and flinging into the river, or bringing them into lighters that lay off, Poor people staying in their houses as long as till the very fire touched them, and then running into boats, or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another. And among other things, the poor pigeons, I perceive, were loath to leave their houses, but hovered about the windows and balconies until they were, some of them burned, their wings and fell down. Having stayed, and in an hour's time seen the fire, rage every way, and nobody, to my sight, endeavouring to quench it, but to remove their goods and leave all to the fire. And having seen it get as far as the steel yard, and the wind mighty high in driving it into the city, and everything, after so long a drought, proving combustible, even the very stones of churches, and among other things the poor steeple, by which pretty Mrs. lives, and whereof my old schoolfellow Edinburgh is parson, taken fire in the very top, and were burned till it fell down. The Diary of Samuel Pepys, Sunday the 2nd of September, 1666. The wind was driving the fire westward, so he ordered the boat to go to Whitehall and became the very first person to inform the king of the fire. According to his entry of that day, Pepys recommended to the king that homes be pulled down in the path of the fire in order to stem its progress. Accepting his advice, the king told him to go to the Lord Mayor Thomas Bloodworth and tell him to start pulling down houses. Pepys took a coach back as far as St Paul's Cathedral, before setting off on foot through the burning city. He found the Lord Mayor, who said, Lord, what can I do? I am spent. P. 
people will not obey me. I have been pulling down houses, but the fire overtakes us faster than we can do it. At noon he returned home and had an extraordinary good dinner, and as merry as at the time we could be, before returning to watch the fire in the city once more. Later he returned to Whitehall, then met his wife in St James's Park. In the evening they watched the fire from the safety of Bankside. Pepys writes that it made me weep to see it. Returning home, Pepys met his clerk, Tom Hayter, who had lost everything. Hearing news that the fire was advancing, he started to pack up his possessions by moonlight. A cart arrived at 4am on the 3rd of September, and Pepys spent much of the day arranging the removal of his possessions. Many of his valuables, including his diary, were sent to a friend from the old navy office at Bethnal Green. At night, he fed upon the remains of yesterday's dinner, having no fire nor dishes, nor any opportunity of dressing anything. The next day, Pepys continued to arrange the removal of his possessions. By then, he believed that Seething Lane was in grave danger, so he suggested calling men from Deptford to help pull down houses and defend the king's property. He described the chaos in the city and his curious attempt at saving his own goods. Sir W. Penn and I to Tower Street, and there met the fire burning three or four doors beyond Mr. House, whose goods, poor man, his trays and dishes, shovels and co., were flung all along Tower Street, in the kennels, and people working wherewith, from one end to the other, the fire coming on in those narrow streets, on both sides, with infinite fury. Sir W. Batten, not knowing how to remove his wine, did dig a pit in the garden, and laid it in there, and I took the opportunity of laying all the papers of my office that I could otherwise dispose of, and in the evening, Sir W. Penn and I did dig another, and put our wine in it, and I my parmesan cheese, as well as my wine and some other things. Pepys had taken to sleeping in his office floor on Wednesday the 5th of September. He was awakened by his wife at 2am. She told him that the fire had almost reached all hallows by the tower and that it was at the foot of Seething Lane. He decided to send her and his gold, about £2,350, to Woolwich. In the following days, Pepys witnessed looting, disorder and disruption. On the 7th of September, he went to St Paul's Wharf and saw the ruins of St Paul's Cathedral, of his old school, of his father's house, and of the house in which he had had his stone removed. Despite all this destruction, Pepys's house, office, and diary were saved. The diary gives a detailed account of Pepys's personal life. He was fond of wine, plays, and the company of other people. He also spent time evaluating his fortune and his place in the world. He was always curious and often acted on that curiosity as he acted upon almost all his impulses. Periodically, he would resolve to devote more time to hard work instead of leisure. For example, in his entry for New Year's Eve, 1661, he writes, I have newly taken a solemn oath about abstaining from plays and wine. The following months reveal his lapses to the reader. By the 17th of February, it was recorded, I drank wine upon necessity, being ill for the want of it. Pepys was one of the most important civil servants of his age and he was also a widely cultivated man, taking an interest in books, music, the theatre and science. Aside from English, he was also fluent in French and read many texts in Latin. His favourite author was Virgil. He passionately insisted in music. He composed, sang and played for pleasure, and he even arranged music lessons for his servants. He played the lute, viol, violin, fagadet, recorder and spinet to varying degrees of proficiency. He was also a keen singer, performing at home, in coffee houses, and even in Westminster Abbey. He and his wife took flagellae lessons from the master, Thomas Greeting. 
He also taught his wife to sing and paid for dancing lessons for her, although these stopped when he became jealous of the dancing master. Pepys was an investor in the Company of Royal Adventurers Trading to Africa, which held the royal monopoly on trading along the west coast of Africa in gold, silver, ivory and slaves. Propriety did not prevent him from engaging in a number of extramarital liaisons with various women that were chronicled in his diary, often in some detail when relating to intimate details. The most dramatic of these encounters was with Deborah Willett, a young woman engaged as a companion for Elizabeth Pepys. On the 25th of October 1668, Pepys was surprised by his wife as he embraced Deb Willett, and he wrote a detailed and intimate account in his diary. Following this event, he was characteristically filled with remorse, but equally characteristically continued to pursue Willett after she had been dismissed from Pepys's household. Pepys may have also dallied with leading actresses of the Restoration period. Mary Neep. Mrs. Neep was the wife of Smithfield horse dealer and the mistress of Pepys, or at least she granted him a share of her favours. Scholars disagree on the full extent of the Pepys-Neep relationship, but much of later generations' knowledge of Neep comes from the diary. Pepys first met Neep on the 6th of December 1665. He described her as pretty enough, but the most excellent, mad, humoured thing, and she sings the noblest I have ever heard in my life. He called her husband, an ill, melancholy, jealous-looking fellow, and suspected him of abusing his wife. Neep provided Pepys with backstage access and was the conduit for theatrical and social gossip. When they wrote notes to each other, Pepys signed himself Dapper Dicky, while Neep was Barbary Allen, a popular song that was an item in her musical repertoire. The diary was written in one of many standard forms of shorthand used in Pepys's time. It is clear from its content that it was written as purely personal record of his life and not for publication. Yet there are indications that Pepys took steps to preserve the bound manuscripts of his diary. He wrote it out in fair copy from rough notes, and he also had the loose pages bound into six volumes, catalogued them in his library with all his other books, and is likely to have suspected that eventually someone would find them interesting. Pepys's health suffered from long hours that he worked throughout the period of the diary. Specifically, he believed that his eyesight had been affected by his work. He reluctantly concluded in his last entry, dated the 31st of May 1669, that he should completely stop writing for the sake of his eyes and only dictate to his clerks from then on, which meant that he could no longer keep his diary. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Pepys and his wife took a holiday to France and the Low Countries in June to October 1669. On their return, Elizabeth fell ill and died on the 10th of November 1669. Pepys has erected a monument to her in the Church of St. Olives, Hart Street in London. Pepys never remarried, but did have a long-term housekeeper named Mary Skinner, 
who was assumed by many of his contemporaries to be his mistress and sometimes referred to as Mrs. Pepys. In his will, he left her an annuity of £200 and many of his possessions. In 1672, he became an elder brother of Trinity House and served in his capacity until 1689. He was the master of Trinity House in 1676 to 1677 and again in 1685 to 1686. In 1673, he was promoted to Secretary of the Admiralty Commission and elected MP for Castle Rising in Norfolk. In 1673, he was involved with the establishment of the Royal Mathematical School at Christ's Hospital, which was to train 40 boys annually in navigation for the benefit of the Royal Navy and the English Merchant Navy. In 1675, he was appointed a governor of Christ's Hospital, and for many years he took a close interest in its affairs. Among his papers are two detailed memoranda on the administration of the school. In 1699, after the successful conclusion of a seven-year campaign to get the master of the mathematical school replaced by a man who knew more about the sea, he was rewarded for his service as a governor by being made freeman of the City of London. He also served as master, without ever having been a freeman or liveryman, of the Cloth Workers' Company. At the beginning of 1679, Pepys was elected MP for Harwich in Charles II's Third Parliament, which formed part of the Cavalier Parliament. He was elected along with Sir Anthony Dean, a Harwich alderman and leading naval architect, to whom Pepys had been patron since 1662. By May of that year, they were under attack from their political enemies. Pepys resigned as Secretary of the Admiralty. They were imprisoned in the Tower of London on suspicion of treasonable correspondence with France, specifically leaking naval intelligence. The charges were believed to have been fabricated under the direction of Anthony Ashley Cooper, 1st Earl of Shaftesbury. Pepys was accused, among other things, of being a secret member of the Catholic Church in England. Pepys and Dean were released in July, but the proceedings against them were not dropped until June 1680. Though he had resigned from the Tangier Committee in 1679, in 1683 he was sent to Tangier to assist Lord Dartmouth with the evacuation and abandonment of the English colony. After six months' service, he travelled back through Spain, accompanied by the naval engineer Edmund Drummer, returning to England after a particularly rough passage on the 30th of March 1684. In June 1684, once more in favour, he was appointed King's Secretary for the Affairs of the Admiralty, a post that he retained after the death of Charles II in February 1685 and the accession of James II. The phantom Pepys's Island, alleged to be near South Georgia, was named after him in 1684 having first been discovered during his tenure at the Admiralty. From 1685 to 1688, he was active not only as Secretary of the Admiralty, but also as MP for Harwich. He had been elected MP for Sandwich, but this election was contested and he immediately withdrew to Harwich. When James fled the country at the end of 1688, Pepys's career also came to an end. In January 1689, he was defeated in a parliamentary election at Harwich. In February, one week after the accession of William III and Mary II, he resigned his secretaryship. He was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1665 and served as its president from the 1st of December 1684 to the 30th of November 1686. Isaac Newton's Principa Mathematica was published during this period and its title page bears Pepys's name. There is a probability problem called the Newton-Pepys problem that arose out of correspondence between Newton and Pepys about whether one is more likely to roll at least one six with six dice or at least two sixes with 12 dice. It has only recently been noted that the gambling advice which Newton gave Pepys was correct, and while the logical argument with which Newton accompanied it was unsound. Pepys was imprisoned on suspicion of jacketabism, 
from May to July 1689, and again in June 1690, but no charges were ever successfully brought against him. After his release, he retired from public life at the age of 57. He moved out of London 10 years later to a house in Clapham, owned by his friend William Hewer, who had began his career working for Pepys in the Admiralty. Clapham was in the country at the time. It is now part of inner London. Pepys lived there until his death on the 26th of May 1703. He had no children and bequeathed his estate to his unmarried nephew, John Jackson. Pepys had disinherited his nephew, Samuel Jackson, for marrying contrary to his wishes. When John Jackson died in 1724, Pepys's estate reverted to Anne, daughter of Archdean Samuel Edgerly, niece of Will Hewer and sister of Hewer Edgerly, nephew and godson of Pepys's old admiralty employer and friend Will Hewer. Hewer was also childless and left his immense estate to his nephew Hewer Edgerly, mostly consisting of the Clapham property as well as lands in Clapham, London, Westminster and Norfolk, on condition that the nephew and godson would adopt the surname Hewer. So Will Hewer's heir became Hewer Edgerly Hewer and he adopted the old Will Hewer home in Clapham as his residence. That is how the Edgerly family acquired the estates of both Samuel Pepys and Will Hewer, sister Anne inheriting Pepys's estate and brother Hewer inheriting that of Will Hewer. On the death of Hewer Edgerly Hewer in 1728, the old Hewer estate went to Edgerly Hewer's widow Elizabeth, who left the 432-acre estate to Levitt Blackburn, the son of Abraham Blackburn, merchant of Clapham and other family members who sold it off in lots. Lincoln's in barrister Levitt Blackburn also later acted as attorney in legal scuffles for the heirs who inherited the Pepys estate. Pepys was buried along with his wife in St Olive's Church in Hart Street in London. Pepys was a lifelong bibliophile and carefully nurtured his large collection of books, manuscripts and prints. At his death, there were more than 3,000 volumes, including the diary, all carefully catalogued and indexed. They form one of the most important surviving 17th century private libraries. The most important items in the library are the six original bound manuscripts of Pepys's diary, but there are other remarkable holdings, including Incabula by William Caxton, 60 medieval manuscripts, the Pepys manuscript, a late 15th century English choir book, naval records such as two of the Antony Rolls illustrating the Royal Navy ships, circa 1546, including the Mary Rose, Sir Francis Drake's personal almanac, and over 1,800 printed ballads, one of the finest collections in existence. Pepys made detailed provisions in his will for the preservation of his book collection. His nephew and heir, John Jackson, died in 1723, when it was transferred intact to Magdalene College, Cambridge, where it can be seen in the Pepys's library. The bequest included that all the original bookcases and his elaborate instructions that placement of the books should be strictly reviewed and, where found requiring it, more nicely adjusted. Motivated by the publication of John Evelyn's diary in 1818, Lord Granville deciphered a few pages. John Smith, later the rector of St Mary's the Virgin in Baldock, was then engaged to transcribe the diaries into plain English. He laboured at this task for three years, from 1819 to 1822, unaware until nearly finished that the key to the shorthand system was stored in Pepys's library, a few shelves down from the diary volumes. Others had apparently succeeded in reading the diary earlier, perhaps knowing about the key, because a work of 1812 quotes from a passage from it. Smith's transcription, which was then kept in Pepys's library, was the basis for the first publication edition of the diary, edited by Lord Braybrook, released in two volumes in 1825. A second transcription, done with the benefit of a key, but less accurately, was completed in 1875 
and published between 1875 and 1879. This added about a third to the previously published text, but still left only about 80% of the diary in print. Henry B. Wheatley, drawing on both his predecessors, produced a new edition in 1893, revised in 1926 with extensive notes and an index. All of these editions omitted passages, chiefly about Pepys's sexual adventures, which the editors thought too obscene to ever be printed. Wheatley, in the preface of his edition, noted, A few passages which cannot possibly be printed. It may be thought by some that these omissions are due to an unnecessary squeamishness, but it is not really so, and readers are therefore asked to have faith in the judgment of the editor. The complete unexpurgated and definitive edition, edited and transcribed by Robert Latham and William Matthews, was published in London and Berkeley in nine volumes, along with separate companion and index volumes over the years 1970 to 1983. Various single-volume abridgments of the text are also available. Several detailed studies of Pepys's life are available. Arthur Bryant published his three-study volume in 1933 to 1938, long before the definitive edition of the diary, but thanks to Bryant's lively style, it is still of interest. The most recent study is by Claire Tomalin, which won the 2002 Whitbread Book of the Year Award, the judge calling it a rich, thoughtful and deeply satisfying account that unearths a wealth of material about the uncharted life of Samuel Pepys. So, I hope you've enjoyed our two-part look at Samuel Pepys, without doubt a historian and someone that kept detailed records for 10 years of his life in London and what was going on in that time, really adding to the course of history. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, londonvisited.co.uk, or our social media. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast, and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.